Good morning. Hello. My name is Chris Causey. Uh, some faces I've never seen before, and we have new people here every week. I'm the pastor here at Encounter Church, and um, it's good to see you here. For those who know who I am, um, it's really good to see your face. Um, I've been, uh, for the last month, not, not speaking regularly. Jason, our executive pastor, um, was preaching through the month of August and did a great job just unpacking the life of David. And um, I was on two, I had two weeks vacation and, and then was excited because we got back into town last week and I was like, I can't wait to be at Encounter Church and just kind of sit and enjoy like you get to do without any of the like spotlights or like, am I going to be able to talk today? And, um, and uh, it was Saturday night and I just physically tanked and I, I really, rarely ever actually get sick and somehow my body was gripped by this really strong fever, and so while you were here last Sunday, if you were here, um, I was laying in the bed wishing I could be here, and so um, for me, just to have this like a little emotive gushy moment, I've missed you, so it's so glad to be back, and it's good, because I was, we were actually on vacation down south, and um, so I'd gotten bitten by a mosquito, which if you spend time with me, you realize my biochemistry background doesn't always help me, um, makes me paranoid, actually, let's just be real. So I was thinking I had Zika. So I think I've cleared the Zika, and so I just want to let everybody know I do not have Zika virus. Um, there was a point of time there where, you know, according to WebMD, I was kind of teetering on the edge, so just made it through. I know you're concerned like I was. I made it through, and I'm excited to be here this morning. Um, while on vacation, I, I'm sure you were probably doing the same thing we were doing. Um, I kind of called up in the Olympics, and uh, we had just kind of this break of time, and it helped that we were with my wife's family on a lake, so every day I was swimming, and we were kind of doing the water, water sport thing, and just happened to coincide with the same time the Olympics are doing their water events, and so it's like you'd spend all day on the lake, then you'd come in and eat a good dinner, cook out, and, and then you'd sit down, and you would watch Michael Phelps dominate all other human beings on planet earth and it was this incredible thing and and then i would go out the next day and um you know i'd get ready to get in the water and i'm doing the like hand flap and stretching because i'm like oh that's the secret that's how they do it you just like do all kinds of crazy things with your body and then dive in and then i would dive in and be really glad that no one saw me dive in because i did not look like michael phelps i looked like a beached well and uh, i was just never was pretty but um, the olympics what's incredible about them is there are this just display of extraordinary human beings for like two weeks, right? Some of the best athletes, people who you know have been practicing for, for maybe a decade or at least for the last four years for that 30 seconds or that two minutes that they have on that line. There's something inspirational about watching these extraordinary individuals with these extraordinary talents and abilities. And it's, I think, something about us as human beings are drawn to the exceptional to the amazing. And it goes beyond just a desire to be uh, spectators of the extraordinary, though. It's me in the silliness of going out to the lake and maybe none of you doing it, but stretching out thinking, you know what? I think I could do that. And diving in and looking like a fool. But the extraordinary thing, uh, it's not just the skills. I think the Olympics also showed us that skill alone isn't what makes an extraordinary life, right? Ryan Lochte is this living picture if he'd been on any other national team, he would have been the other superstar of the Olympics. But because he's behind Michael Phelps, who's the most winningest human being in Olympic history, like both modern and ancient, he kind of was second fiddle. But yet what people remember about him was a stupid mistake. Because an exceptional ability, an exceptional talent, doesn't mean an, excep an exceptional life. 
But there's something about watching people in that arena that I think calls up something that God put inside of us to live lives that are extraordinary. To live lives that make a difference. To live lives that have an above average impact. Right? Nobody wants to have a marriage that's just average or below average. None of us stand in front of the loved one at the altar and say, man, I really hope this thing kind of fizzles out around year 12 and we both hate each other and spend a lot of money really sticking it to one another. Like, that's what I'm hoping out of life. Like, no one gets to the end of their life and says, man, I am dying all alone and it is good. Right? None of us ever get there. All of us, as children, have these things of dreams and imagining what could be, not just in marriage and relationships, but in our personal life and our professional life. We have something in us that whispers you were created for something more. And whether it's the Olympics or an inspirational story, all of those trigger that inner whisper inside of us that says you were made for more. And this year, as we step into kind of this new season of life with school. I say the next year because this week we celebrate as a church meeting weekly for a year. Like this has been 52 weeks in a row, which is incredible. It's exciting to see what God is doing. But I'm imagining the next 52 weeks and what's going to happen in the next year of my life. And this morning, I want to talk about what does it look like? How do you and I not just watch and spectate, the extraordinary life, but participate in an extraordinary life. And, and to kind of process through that, to spend a little time looking at the life of an individual who, when he first met Jesus, there was nothing extraordinary about him at all. He was just like you and I. He was ordinary. But there was something in him that was drawn to Jesus and what Jesus promised. And it's that interaction between, between him and Jesus that in the midst of that really profound moment of his life, he shows us that for there to be this kind of extraordinary change, there has to be this extraordinary faith, too, that comes with it. But what he does for us is he demonstrates these two keys that I think are essential for you and I to start living out and tasting and pressing in to this extraordinary life over the next year. He shows us that faith has to become personal and it has to become active. And that in his example, he shows us that this extraordinary life is not something reserved for the elites or for the few, but that the many, that we can participate in it too. I'm going to be in a passage today in Matthew chapter 14. And um, if, like Melissa said, you've downloaded the Encounter Church app, you can click on that app and it'll be in the message, um, it'll be in the Bible section. And then you can also see it in the message notes to kind of follow along. But I want to set the backdrop before I dive into Matthew 14. Matthew, um, if you've, I'm kind of new to the church experience, Matthew is the first book in what is called the Christian New Testament. So the, the Bible is a collection of two distinct um, book group of bookling. You have like the Old Testament, which is the Jewish Bible, and then you have the New Testament, which is the distinctly Christian Bible. And Matthew is the first book in that. Matthew is written by Matthew. Um, it's named after him, and he was a follower of Jesus. He knew Jesus personally. Jesus called him out into following him, and Matthew saw God do incredible things in his life as he followed Jesus, but Matthew was also Jewish, and this is important because Matthew writes his book, his letter to Jewish people, which 
unless you come out of a Jewish context, you can miss some of the nuances. It's like reading the USA Today and the New York Times and The Economist and reading all three of them reporting about the same event, and yet each account will have a different nuance. The Economist is going to come from the angle of like the money and business and finance and New York Times is going to come at a little bit more of a higher kind of intellectual engagement and more philosophical bent and report some facts. And the USA Today is written for eighth grade level. And so you've got all the same event, but different nuances because of different audiences. And that's what you see in the first four books of the New Testament. You have four Gospels, the same Jesus, but four different nuanced looks at his life. And Matthew writes his to the Jewish audience to capture moments that he knew that Jews would be sensitive to. So he knows that as he's writing, there's going to be details in his account that speak to a distinctly kind of Jewish approach to life and faith. What happens right before the passage in verse 22 through 33 that I'm going to read is the feeding of the 5,000, which is one of the kind of, kind of large miracles of Jesus' life. And the feeding of the 5,000 is essentially where Jesus, in the midst of preaching one day in a large crowd, there's not fast food restaurants, and he's been there, people have stayed all day, and they keep saying, teach us more, teach us more, and he keeps preaching. And, and by the end of the day, people are hungry, and he's like, we should feed them. And there is literally about a can of tuna fish and a small loaf of bread. That, that's the only food they have in the entire group of 5,000 people. But here's the thing. When it says the feeding of the 5,000, uh, the ancients would record crowd sizes by men, which is a little messed up, right? But they would, 5,000 was the num- number of men. It wasn't the women and the children. So when you hear the feeding of the 5,000, what is actually occurring is more like the feeding of twenty to 25,000 people. And Jesus feeds almost 25,000 people with literally a can of bumblebee tuna fish and a small loaf of bread. I mean, that, like, that's the extent of this miracle. And all of them are fed to the point that there are 12 baskets with leftovers that each one of Jesus' followers picks up. There's so much food that if you actually had put them in a tuna fish can, you would have stacked them up. They would have been as tall as almost all three buildings, all three of Boston's tallest buildings stacked on top of each other. So much food. Jesus produces out of nowhere. It's a miracle. And it's out of that moment that you find verse 22 and 33. That's what's just happened. So let's read. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other, to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerably distant, considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake, and when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you're the son of God. So this is this incredible moment in the life of Peter and Jesus. 
What you have in the backdrop, just for you to be aware, is that um, while it centers on Peter and Jesus, what's happened is that I tell you about the feeding of the 5,000 so that you'll know it was nine hours that they're out on the water. It says that, if you notice, it says right before dawn, right? Jesus comes to them. They'd been out rowing on a lake that's about six miles across for nine hours because this huge storm comes against them. They're exhausted. They're spent. They haven't slept. They've been fighting for survival. That's why when you see them scream, it's a ghost, it kind of gives you a little bit of a glimpse into their psyche in this place of desperation and exhaustion. It's like, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, um, my closet was not a scary thing until it was dark and I was in there by myself and the door was open. Then all of a sudden, it became the den of robbers and thieves and goblins and you know, I was convinced there were all kinds of scary boogeymans waiting to get me. Because you start to get alone and you start to get tired and your brain starts to make up some crazy things and that's where they are. They see Jesus and they scream, it's a ghost, which means we're all going to die. That's kind of what that meant because culturally if a ghost shows up, it means you're about to join them. And yet in the midst of that, while Peter's been fighting against the wind for nine hours, exhausted, right beside him, brushing up and bumping up against his leg is a basket full of leftovers. It's this constant kind of bump of a reminder of what happened the day before. And it's this moment that I think is so helpful for us because we see Peter do something. He makes faith personal. Right? This idea of this basket bumping up at this leg, this really cool thing that Jesus just did, now starts to take on some personal meaning. It says that Peter sees Jesus. Everyone else kind of freak out. Jesus responds and says, takes courage, it is I, which, remember I told you this is to a Jewish audience, it is I is a really important phrase, Jesus says. For a Jewish audience, they would have instantly got the throwback. It was, I am. Which is the same way that God introduced himself to Moses when he first spoke. And Moses says, well, what's your name? And God does the, the most incredible divine mic drop ever when he says, my name, my name is I am that I am. Bam. And it's like, wow, like that's an impressive name. Like, I exist. That's all you need to know. Like, I am. I've always existed. It's this incredible statement of power and presence. And, and Jesus invokes that language. Peter says, who are you? And he says, I am. You can be, it's okay. And Peter says, okay, if it's you, it's like, all right, I'm getting it. All right, I am, gotcha. So since it's you, I am, then how about you, you let me come? You see, another Jewish kind of thing happening in the back of his mind would have been this reality and this truth that Jews would have grown up hearing the Old Testament read to them. They would have memorized it. Um, Most Jewish boys and girls had memorized large portions of the Old Testament because it was written in a Hebrew that was really easy to memorize because it was almost a a melody to it. It's the same reason that you and I can hear a song from the 80s and instantly get called back up, right? Because it gets driven down deep inside of you. And and so Peter, all of a sudden, this has this moment because buried in the book of Job is this this prediction, this description of God that was unique to God and only God himself, and it was that he would walk on the treacherous waters. 
It's this little tiny Jewish idea that God could walk on the seas. And Peter's watching it happen in front of him, and he hears the I am. He's like, all right. Well, if you are, then can I? Like, can I get out? Because that's a pretty cool trick, and if you can, and you tell me I can, then I can. Because here's the deal. What most of us hear when we hear make faith personal, we think faith is blind optimism. It's kind of, oh, circumstances are going to work out. That's not faith. That's blind optimism. You have no confidence. You have no rationale. You have no reason. All you have is some vain hope that it works out in the end. Faith is not blind optimism that circumstances will just turn out chaos and it'll all work out in the end. Faith is a focus on the character of God regardless of your circumstances. And this is critical because Peter's in the midst of a storm and he says, okay, the storm's still happening. A man who was terrified a ghost is about to take him to the nether regions, right? Like, is now saying, okay, if you're God, then let me come on out there. And the reason why is because the character of God, when you focus on that, that changes you in the midst of your circumstances. Which is so much better than your circumstances changing. Because you're able to walk through it. And Peter says, okay, if you're God, if you're really who I think you are, then you'll let me. But let me just kind of hit pause real quick because one of the things I love about Encounter Church is we have people from all different parts of the journey. We have some of us who are completely kind of sold out to this idea of the Christian faith and following it. And some of us who are like maybe me in college, we're, you're not a believer and you don't really know where you fall. And let's just be real. This idea of walking on the water, like, woo, that's a little strange. Like, not David Copperfield, acrylic, kind of platform buried underneath the water with the camera trick walking on water i mean like and it's water like that's a little odd right and and this idea of faith it's a little strange and so i want to just kind of speak to you a little bit real quickly so this notion of walking on the water i want to remind you what the christian faith is about so the christian faith is is not built on what the bible tells me so the christian faith its cornerstone is the fact that a dead man predicted his death, like Jesus predicts his death, which you can sort of arrange that if possible, but then he does the extraordinary. He predicts his resurrection and actually follows through it. He says, you'll kill me. Three days later, I'll come back from the dead. And he does. And no one in human history has ever done that. Been stuck in a tomb, and then three days later said, I'm done. And walks out. And the reason that Christians are okay with an idea that Jesus and maybe even Peter could walk on water isn't because we're crazy or irrational. It's that we, in fact, are quite rational. We believe if a man can come back from the dead on his own will, then surely he's got the water and the bumblebee tuna figured out. That if, if he can pull off that ultimate miracle, and it's not just because the Bible tells us so. It's that people like Josephus, who didn't even believe in Jesus, writes historically at the same time, because this is all happening in history. Christianity is built on an event. It's not even predicated on an idea that his followers made up. It, this is an event that rippled through the Roman Empire. And people wrote about it. People talked about it. How these followers of Jesus, 
Like this was historically happening and people were caught up in it. And so the idea of walking on water, as crazy as it sounds, we believe is not the craziest thing that we trust. The craziest thing, the thing that has all, the the whole cornerstone built on it, is that Jesus said, you're going to kill me and then three days later I'll come back from the dead. And that's why we think if he can come back from the grave, he can moonwalk, he can jig, he can do whatever he wants on that water. Because he's got power that I don't understand. And Peter gets that. Peter's like, you're different. This isn't normal. And it gets personal to Peter. It's not, it's not the basket bumping up against his leg. It's not something he saw. It's something on the inside he starts to trust him. But this idea of faith, unfortunately, especially if you kind of grew up on the edges or fringes of a church or even kind of bumped up against, faith is one of those tricky things too. Where you're like, what is, I don't know what faith is. That's something that like religious people have. I'm not sure how to even grow faith. I'm not sure I know how to define faith. And, and let me kind of speak to that for a second before I jump back into the story. Is that faith inherently is always relational. Right? Think about it. Um, so faith is not some strange thing that's reserved for the Bible. Faith is actually an integral part of our life. The day you said, I alluded to marriage earlier, so let's just take that. The day you stood in front of that person, and you both looked good, and you said, I do, and they said, I do, you both look pretty and everything's perfect, you're not just saying, I do in this moment, you're really saying, I will, aren't you? That is a huge faith moment. Because you're saying, I believe that who you are and who I am for the rest of our lives, we can work this out together. I would argue that any significant relationship in your life right now is ultimately an expression of faith and trust in their character and who they are. Faith is not some strange thing. It's not even just at the, at the basis of our relationship. Faith is actually the basis of most significant business transactions. What you call a credit check or an audit is really nothing more than people trying to mitigate faith in the business dealings. But at the end of the day, they still don't know how this thing pans out in the future. And so what do they do? You both sign the bottom of a document. And that's a faith statement. It's saying, in faith, I will pay the bill. And the bank's saying, in faith, we, you better pay the bill. Right? But they don't know. I mean, they've got a credit report, but they don't know what you're going to do. It's faith. Because faith, at the end of the day, is about focusing and trusting in the character of someone. Not blind optimism in something. But Go back to the story because I kind of went off on that tangent. So here's Peter, and this thing called faith has all of a sudden gotten personal. He's saying that Jesus has said, come. Jesus has told me, step out of the boat. And it gets very personal. And Peter decides if he can walk on water, then he can call me to walk on water too. If he's the I am, then I am able to do it too. And let's just imagine for one second, what if what Peter decided when he made it personal with faith, what if you and I made faith personal 
for the next year? What if you and I decided, you know what, God, if you are real, if you are able, then maybe what could you do in my life? I mean, imagine if God was real, if I really believe God was real and that He was really for me, He was really for me growing in my relationship with Him. He was really for me developing as a person. He was really for my marriage. He was really for me as a parent. He was really for me in the personal, quiet things that no one else here. That He was really for me in my professional life. That He was really for me. What would I be open to make real in my own life? I think that's a crazy implication of what if God was and who He is He claims to be. What implications would that bring for you and I? And that's what I mean when I say make faith personal. It's not an idea. It's not a religious notion. It's a powerful, powerful practice of focusing on the character of God and wondering what does that mean for my life? If He loves me that much. If He cares about me that much. What could He do in my relationships? And what could He do with the people that I love who are far from Him? Or people who I love who are going through serious and dark times? Like, what are the implications for that? But then notice that Peter also makes faith active. That Peter hears Jesus' call and Peter does something extraordinary. He gets out of the boat and steps onto the water. And that's an important word. He steps onto the water. He's a fisherman. He knows that you step into the water. You don't step onto the water. But he does. Because faith can't just be personal. It has to be activated. You have to make faith active. It's like having that gift card that you were given. You know, that's $150. $150. You're like, I can buy some stuff. But until you activate it, it's just sitting there. There's nothing, it's not going to make a difference. But when you step out and you activate it, something changes. And that's what Peter does in faith. He activates his faith. He steps out of the boat and into the, the water. The only second person in human history to do it. No one else has ever stepped on water. Except for Jesus and Peter. Like, He's that guy that for the rest of his life, he probably annoyed people, right? You know, you're around those people who always have to share stories and tell things about what they, oh, yeah, well, I, yeah, well I've, I've actually spent time with the president in the White House. Well, I walked on water. Bam. Like every, like every he always wins the one-up story competition. And they're like, oh, yeah, you walked on water. He's like, have you walked on water? No, then there you go. I've walked on water. Like, it's ultimate bragging rights. It's like, he's done something only Jesus has done. But what I don't want you to miss is what is potentially the most tragic about this story. It's not Jesus having doubts and struggles and starting to sink. What's tragic about this story is that I believe that the boat was filled with 11 men who could have done it too. Who they stayed in while Peter stepped out. To me, that's actually the... The, the headline buried in the lead of like, these guys could have tasted it too. There was nothing special about Peter that gave him like unique abilities or special permission. If any of the other ones had acted like a four-year-old 
right? I have a four-year-old, and if she sees you do something, she's like, I want to do it too, and jumps straight into it. If anybody else on the boat had acted like a four-year-old, there would have been a dance party of 12 people out there with Jesus on the water. And to me, that's the greatest tragedy, is that while Peter activated his faith, the rest of them let it stay passive. And they never got to experience or taste or walk on this incredible thing. And look, even if you, like I said earlier about walking on water, and you're like, okay, that's an extraordinary thing. I'm not sure I buy that. Let me just unpack it, I think, for all of us in the same room. Here's what it basically says to us. That if, if you never get out of the boat, you will never walk on the water. I mean, that's the reality. If, if we don't step out of the boat, we will never, ever walk on the water. And said in another way that if you and I keep doing the same things that we've been doing and going through the same routines and operating out of the same habits, we will continue to get the exact same thing every single day. And if we want to see something different in our lives this year, then it will happen when you and I decide to make faith personal and to make faith active. And said, I don't want to be someone who remains in the boat. I want to be someone who steps out. And then as we wrap up our time together, what if you believed? Like what, what would you do if you knew God was for you? What would you step into? What risk would you take? What relationship challenge would you lean into? What conversation would you have if you really knew God was for you in it? Maybe for some of us, it would be being willing to forgive. For some of us, it would be willing to own up to our mistakes and our relationship that's been silently killing it. Because we believe, man, God's in this thing for us. God's able to do something extraordinary in us. Because when we're willing to make faith personal, and when we're willing to make faith active, there's no limit to what we can see God do in our lives. And may it never be said about us as a people, this year or any year of our lives, that we had an opportunity to step out of the boat and into something extraordinary, but we chose, because of fear, of insecurity, to stay in. And I just want to say over us, God has some extraordinary things to step into this next year. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for Peter. Thank you for this story. The man who made faith personal, who made it active. Of a story that wasn't made up. It's not pristine. It's not it's filled with a man who has doubts and who has jerky stops and who's a little awkward and who's not perfect but he's in a process that has progress so may we imagine in this year may we imagine in our lives the implications of what if you are real the what if you're up to something and you're inviting us to it and may we be people 
who make it personal and who make it absolute. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Before we wrap up today, um, one of the kind of just, I knew we were going to have uh, this holiday weekend, we're going to be gathered together, and I just want to kind of set this picture for you and I, this prayer for you and I over the course of our year. Because I don't think any of us walked in here saying, I'm okay with everything in my life the way it is. That all of us can point to something that we want to see, an area of our life we want to grow into, a relationship that we want to see richer or fuller or deeper. I mean, going into vacation, with my four-year-old, I was like, God, I want to win her heart this week. I want to say yes every time she wants to play. Like, that's a relationship I want to keep fighting for. And that um, in our response time today, I want us to, to engage with a song that I think captures that sentiment so beautifully. It's a song called Oceans. And it's actually a song written out of this moment in Peter's life. Of Peter saying, if I, I want to see something different, i got to do something different. So he steps out. And it's a song about that moment and about the faith of that moment. But about what an extraordinary God can do when ordinary people like us start to head towards his way as he's coming ours. And this is also kind of in our response that we want to make sure we carve out enough time just for you to process because I know that there are things, maybe you're sitting there with your spouse and this is just a moment for you to look over and say, hey, I don't know what everything looks like, but can we, can we sing the song together or can we pray, can we believe? Or maybe that's a conversation you decide in your head we're going to have when we get home or with your kids or maybe as you go into your, your new school year. To say, I want my life to count. I want to stand up for what's right and what's good in my school. Or I want to be a person that the unloved can find love. To be a friendly person that steps in and loves the people who are sitting by themselves at lunch. Say, God, what, what is it in my life that you want to see over the next year? And give me courage to take it, to take that step into it. It's also um, a time that we carve out for those who call Encounter Church Home to be able to give. Um, we are a church over the next month who's going to be serving in multiple communities, and we're a generous church because you're generous people. And so for those who call Encounter Church Home, um, this is that space that we carve out so we can practice our generosity. And, and for those who are first-time guests, um, this is a space carved out so that you can um, let us know how we can pray for you through the app or through the connection card, or let us know how we can jump in with you and what God is doing in your life and in your journey. But for whatever it is, we want this to be a time where you're able to take a next step, that first step into what God has. So I invite you to stand, sing along, and at the end of the song, I'll come up and dismiss.